Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and I'll pray for these things, and then we're going to open up and look at Second Peter, and we'll try and get through the remainder of these verses this morning. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your sovereign plan. Lord, it is one of those times in the life of our church where it just seems that people are being hit left and right. Lord, I think of Gail with the passing of her mom and Jim Crevax with the service yesterday for his daughter who passed away unexpectedly and, and John, our brother John, with the passing of his mom and then, Lord, my family with Kevin unexpectedly being called home by you. Lord, we trust your purposes. We trust your plan. We don't, we don't understand it always. Lord, if we were left in charge, we would do things differently, but that only shows our ignorance of your good and sovereign purposes. And so I pray, Lord, for comfort for all the families who are hurting. I do pray for the travels that many are going to be making to be with their family at different times as deaths have occurred in different parts of the country. So I just pray, Lord, that in all of this, those of us who know Jesus Christ will be good testimonies. And Lord, the world, I pray that the world will see that though we grieve and we shed many tears, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Lord, we love you. And now we pray as we turn our attention to your word that you will help us to focus, that you'll help us to have ears to hear. And Lord, as we talk about these character qualities that should be a part of each one of our lives as followers of Jesus, I pray that you will help us not just to listen and not just to understand, but also to apply the truths to our lives so that where we need to change, we'll change. Where we're doing well, we'll praise you for your uh, provision for us and strengthening of us. And Lord, help us to be determined not just to be hearers of your word, but doers. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Second Peter chapter 1, and we've been working our way through verses 5 to 7, and I introduced it two weeks ago, but then I began teaching through this section last week, and I'm not going to review that because we're going to be a little bit pressed for time, and I want to get through everything. But as you recall, we are dealing with verses where Peter has very quickly transitioned from his introduction, where he laid out some foundational principles of his letter, and he's now quickly transitioning to practical application, and he's really exhorting us to be godly, to be holy as God is holy. He's calling us to be Christ-like. And as I laid out the outline for this, I said this is in its essence, it's sort of a roadmap to Christian maturity of what our Christian faith should look like. And I phrased it because of the nature of the rapid-fire transition from point to point to point, in these few verses that Peter employed, that this is eight mile markers to Christian maturity. We're on a long race, we're running, and these are points that Peter lays out for us so that we would know what God expects of us. Again, Peter was writing the letter, and I, I highlight this, and I'll say it over and over, he was writing the letter to protect the church from false teachers, but it's interesting that he doesn't begin with, and here's what to look out for with all the error. He begins with saying, and this is who you should be, knowing that one of the defenses against false teachers is us walking in obedience to the truth of God. 
This isn't just about knowing the truth so that we can navigate and say this is true and this is false. While that is very critical and important, it's about living out the truth so that a lost and dying world sees in us Jesus Christ. We'll be fighting the flesh. We'll be striving for excellent behavior. And it requires work on our part. Verse 5, now for this very recent also applying all diligence, he's just making it clear this requires effort. God did his part in choosing us and saving us. That's for this very reason that God chose us. He saved us. He equipped us. And now we have to apply ourselves. Jumped out of my head that really in Ephesians 2.8, it's very famous that we are saved by God's grace. Not through works. We don't get to boast. It's a gift of God. But then if you don't keep reading in verse 10... It says something important. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. As the, the New Testament often does, Peter is really just echoing something similar. He's telling us, walk in these ways. This is what God wants from you. So quickly, last week we covered three, and the first of the eight-mile markers to Christian maturity was genuine faith. He says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. And I I highlighted that that word supply, which applies to everything which follows, really has the idea of abundant effort, of exertion, a lot of effort going into it. He's already said they've received a faith. So this is the only one of these eight mile markers that we don't actually work for, although we work to add to the faith. That's what the supply is, in your faith supply. In other words, we're, we're working hard for all that follows. But my point last week was that the beginning is faith. If you don't have faith, you're not getting anywhere. You can't advance on the road to Christian maturity if you're not a Christian in the first place. But, he says, in your faith, the second point, moral excellence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Again, supply Abundance, zeal, hard effort, every effort. And we're supposed to supply moral excellence. The word that was used previously to describe Jesus. In other words, this is another way of saying we're to be like Christ in every area of our lives. We're to have conviction. We're to have courage to stand strong. Even if the road ahead as a Christian has challenges, and it does, we're committed that we're going to keep pressing forward and being like Jesus in everything. The third point we covered last week, genuine faith, moral excellence. Third was growing knowledge. And in your moral excellence knowledge, and as I've already indicated, these are really building off of each other. They're not to be separated from each other, but it's just showing the progression of how we become more of what God wants us to be. We have faith, and to our faith we supply Christ-likeness and moral excellence, but we also supply knowledge. One of the key issues, again, is false teachers, and they were peddling false knowledge. And so he is exhorting us, keep going, know the truth. And this is practical wisdom to live out God's word. It's not just the acquisition of more information, although this is important. You can't obey the commandments of God if you don't know the commandments of God, but 
It has to do with the ability in difficult circumstances of wisely choosing the knowledge of God as your guiding standard so that you walk in His ways. And we covered last week, we do it in two ways. We study the Word and we pray. Again, I'm not going to reteach it. Proverbs of Solomon make it clear that God's Word provides the beginning of wisdom. And God's already given us everything. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us. That's the beginning of the book. But we have to avail ourselves of those resources and apply those resources. And I mentioned prayer because, as James said, if any of you lacks wisdom, the ability to practically live out the Word of God, then let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. And also I highlighted the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14, where he was emphasizing that knowledge is the key. So, it's a brief overview of last week, and now we're going to continue on and press through the final versions. The beginning of verse 6, he says, And in your knowledge, self-control. Again, the idea is we supply this. We have to exert ourselves. We have to work at self-control. It's the ability to control our fleshly instincts, which are tainted by sin. The passions that still flow up within us, even though we're believers, it's those temptations that come our way, and it's the ability to keep those temptations at bay and still choose to follow Christ. One commentator said it this way, quote, The inner power to control one's own desires and cravings, the fruit resulting from true knowledge. And this applies, like all of these, to every area of our life. We're being called to zealously work at self-control. Now, that's always a challenge for any person because even though we're saved, our flesh still pulls. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. That's that fleshly pull. But I'm convinced in some respects, and certainly this is the true historically, there's nothing new under the sun. But in our day and age, I can't think of many virtues that are viewed as negatively by our culture than self-control. It's had a devastating impact on our society but it's also have a devastating impact on the church. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean the idea that you should never deny yourself. You should always follow your feelings. You should always, you want to do that? Well, of course, don't deny yourself. Now, I'm going to illustrate this. Although it goes far beyond this, it applies to every area of life. I could show it to you in countless areas, be it physical health or exercise or eating or anything else, but I'm just going to briefly illustrate it from an area that is dominant in our society, which has to do with sexuality, sexual behavior. I thought about this a lot yesterday as I was, as I was working, and I went back and looked back a few things, because 
anytime I start remembering things from my childhood, I start thinking, well, I'm getting old. <laughs> Did that really happen? Do I really remember correctly? But I can tell you, and most of you, some of you are young, but most of you would remember this. There was a time, let me back up. People have always sinned against God sexually. It's in the Bible. That's always been the case. But even in America, even in our culture, there was a time when the biblical ethic of sexual morality was actually communicated to society. I remember learning in public school that sex was something only between a husband and a wife, that you didn't have premarital sex, that if a husband and wife were married, they were married for life. That was taught in schools. That was what was portrayed, even though there were aberrations, but in general, even in TV shows and things like that was portrayed. I think it's interesting, if you remember the old show Dragnet with Jack Webb, I remember watching an episode with one of my daughters. It was on Netflix or something. And there was an episode where Jack Webb, as Joe Friday on the show, in Los Angeles, on an episode of a secular TV show, was talking about those who would deal with perversions like homosexuality and call it normal. Could you imagine Hollywood making a show like that today? It just isn't going to happen. But what happened, if you follow is, yes, there were people that had premarital sex. Yes, there were people that had affairs, but it was considered shameful behavior and embarrassing behavior. But then somewhere along the lines, based to the influence, I think, largely of an evolutionary scientific mindset that applied itself to perceived, applying itself to the human mind and the human psyche, trying to explain human behavior apart from God, people decided that, wait a minute, why are we telling people to repress themselves? This is horrible. And as many of you who are older than me would probably live through, there became a time where, wait a minute, if it feels good, you should do it. And then that didn't become just a fringe thing. That became dominant such that now in kindergarten, they're trying to tell kids, look, if you don't want to be a boy and you're a boy, you're not really a boy. It's insane. But it all comes back to this idea of what do you want? How do you feel? And to deny your wants and feelings is the worst thing in the world. Here's the problem. That didn't just stay out in the society. It creeped into churches. Because one of the changes of the sexual ethic that husband and wife get married and you stay married, one of the things that happened was divorce came on the scenes and Christians embraced divorce fully. And I'm not criticizing anybody who's got a divorce. God, every one of us, has a laundry list of sins but there are some things that are still sin. And there is a biblical place. Some divorces, one spouse is not at fault. But by and large, what happened in society and it happened in the church is Christians just dove in with everybody else. I'm not going to worry about a biblical reason. I'm going to do what I want to do. And pastors didn't condemn it. Pastors realized, I don't want to offend people, so that's good. Same thing has happened with sexuality. You have pastor after pastor saying, of course God condones homosexuality. In fact, I read an article by an interview with a pastor where the pastor had written a book to explain that the Bible doesn't even condemn premarital sex or extramarital sex. The Bible wants you to feel good. That is from the pit of hell, but this is from somebody calling themselves a pastor, leading a church. 
I use that as an illustration, but it goes far beyond sexual ethic. I can't tell you the number of times I've had to repeat over and over counseling, your feelings don't matter. Yes, they're real, but that doesn't mean they're truth. Our hearts are deceitful above all else. They lead us astray. The truth comes back to the word of God. And we have to exercise self-control based on the knowledge of God's word and what he wants for us. Even when society is saying the doors are open, come in, have fun, join us. We have to have the self-control that says God said otherwise. God said no. Again, the, the message of society is, look, this is who people are. This is just who they are. Don't fight it. Well, there's a sense in which it is true who they are because they're born sinners. They're born with corrupted human natures. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. So yeah, there's a sense in which the argument comes at you and says, well, people are born that way. Yeah, they are. They're born sinners. But that doesn't mean once we become believers, we don't have the ability to exercise self-control to restrain those sinful impulses. And we have to do it even when everybody around us, including many people that we may know who call themselves Christians, are saying, no, 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 no. Again, there's healing from sexual sin. There's healing from every sin. Most of us here at some point in our lives have sinned grievously, many in sexual ways. The message of the Bible is you're not condemned if you know Jesus Christ. He died in the place of sinners. He died for that. But once we've been freed, once our eyes have been opened, then it's incumbent upon us to apply the knowledge of God we have with the Spirit of God dwelling in us to say no more will we go down that path. And if we sin or stumble and fall, we confess our sins and God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and we say, Lord, help me, I never want to go there again. Self-control is something no believer can say, I can't do it. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Bible says restrain ourselves. We can restrain ourselves. The Bible says exercise self-control. We can. In fact, Peter has already made it clear that our lusts, not just sexual, our inordinate desires for something no longer control us. He said in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 that we become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And as a believer, and this is critical, if you're a believer and you're faced with a circumstance where I either have to follow what God says or I have to follow my own desires. In other words, I'm going to sin or I'm not going to sin. You don't have to choose sin. In every single circumstance, when you come to that fork in the road, you can choose the right path. That's what Peter's calling us to do by exercising self-control. Why do I say that? Because God promises it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 
No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, meaning all of us have our struggles. And God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able? If a Christian says, I can't, they're calling God a liar. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. In every circumstance, you can exercise self-control. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And at every time you come to a crossroads, remind yourself there's an escape somewhere. Temptations are powerful. I'm a sinner like you're a sinner. I understand this struggle. But I also know that in every such circumstance, there is a way of escape. I have to exercise the self-control to stop, to see it, and to take it. So, going on to number five on this road to Christian maturity. I have to speed up a little bit. The second part of verse six. And in your self-control, perseverance. It's really the natural outgrowth of all of these things. All of them build. They're all interconnected. But it's the idea, and some translations state it this way, of steadfastness, endurance. Bearing up, standing strong, even when the load on you is heavy. I read the scripture emphasizing a different point last week. But Peter is encouraging us with something that the writer of Hebrews also talked about. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, we're called to, to be like Christ even when we face our own burdens and seemingly insurmountable hurdles. We're being called to endure and keep pressing on. Perseverance. Not to give up. Life is hard. It is. There are outside pressures that buffet each one of us that scream compromise on this just please compromise now satan is constantly tempting us throwing darts at us littering our path with opportunities to turn away from god and the worst enemy is the one inside which is that flesh that's why heaven seems so appealing to me i heard a message at a funeral for a godly man who had a big impact on my life years ago in Fresno, made me want to go to heaven because the pastor, and it was John MacArthur, was preaching and he was explaining that in heaven we no longer have to battle our flesh. That sounded better to me than I could imagine. I want to see Jesus, but I also want to be done with the temptations and the fights. I hate it. But until then, we have to press on. We have to persevere. We have to exercise that self-control. This room's full of people who have endured hardships. I don't even know all your hardships, but you know them. Life is difficult. One of the reasons I think it's so important for the believers to be in church is as we watch other people go through those times, we draw strength from their example. 
when we see certain believers and we look at their life and we go, I, I don't know how they do it. Well, the answer is God, and we see it, and they become our own modern-day cloud of witnesses that we look to, not just these giants of the faith, but the brothers and sisters that are sitting in the pews that despite the tears and despite the pain and despite the hurt, will tell you immediately, praise the Lord. Moving on. Again, time is short. The sixth mile marker is increasing godliness. Again, in verse 6, as we continue on, and in your perseverance, godliness. And godliness is, certainly it involves our behavior. All of this is a combination, but it also involves our perspective, how we view everything going on around us. Reading a lot about the word, the idea has to do with being of such a, a mindset that in every moment of every day we're thinking about God and what he wants for us. It's thinking biblically about every circumstance. And it includes our interactions with others. In fact, as we go to the next point, which will be brotherly kindness, it will deal with that. But it has the idea that we must be consumed with God even as we are living out our lives in a fallen world. Godliness is not that lifestyle of some misguided souls of times past where they went and they lived in the desert by themselves so they could focus on God. No, it's people that are in the trenches, in the muck, in the pigsty, which is what our world is. But at each moment we're thinking about Jesus means we aren't just thinking about God and His Word on Sundays when we're here together. But on Sunday afternoon, we're thinking about it. Then on Monday morning, we're thinking about it. Now on Tuesday and Wednesday, in other words, it permeates our life. Every issue that we're dealing with, we're thinking, what would God want me to do? We're thinking, how can I honor the Lord? And again, this leads specifically to the interaction we have with other human beings, particularly those in the family of God, which brings us to our seventh marker, brotherly kindness. He says, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, verse 7. It's a crucial component because as all of these things play out, it's not just a matter of transforming our hearts, but it is critical that we do that. That's what exercising self-control and, and showing perseverance. But all of these things should ultimately result in us interacting with other of God's children in a God-honoring way. It's an attitude towards fellow believers that wants what's best for them. It's the attitude expressed by what Jesus said was the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a hard attitude that lives out selflessly for the interest of others, not just what's in it for me. Again, this is one of those areas where our society runs dead up against Scripture because society says, take care of yourself first. Love yourself. Get yourself in order, then deal with other things. That's not what the Scriptures say. The scriptures say your identity isn't yourself, your identity is in Christ, so you live for others. I think Peter 
is stressing with these words things that manifest themselves as Paul commanded. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Galatians 6, 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. In other words, we should be looking at every moment when we're interacting with others of how can we bless them? How can we benefit them? On Sunday morning, each of us at times has come to church and we feel like the tank is almost out of gas. We're not triumphantly walking to church. We're crawling through saying, Lord, help me. Praise the Lord for that. That is where we're recharged. That is where we're strengthened. But remember that even as you're crawling through the door, somebody else can't even crawl and you can reach out to them and you can help them in the midst of it. Each one of us is called to live selflessly. Again, you can see how all these things build up because we come to a point in time where we say, you know what, I've done for other people enough. Nobody's doing for me. It's a sinful attitude, but we're sinful people. But that's when we have to exercise self-control that says it's not about me. And that's when we have to exercise perseverance that says, I know my life's hard, I'm going to keep pressing on. That's when we have to think God's thoughts. Okay, I'm going to be godly even though I want to be otherwise. And it manifests itself in brotherly kindness where we say, okay, Lord, I'm here. How can I help others? Because it's not about me. That brings us to the final point, and I'll wrap this up. Although I could preach, and I actually thought about stopping and doing an entire message on this, and I thought, no, I'm just going to keep going. But the final is ultimately the culminating virtue, love. Love. Peter says, and in your brotherly kindness, love. This really has to motivate everything we do. Peter's building to a crescendo here, and the crescendo, the culmination, is love. Peter knows that if love isn't present, none of the rest of any of this is possible. I'm going to read some scriptures, all from 1 John chapter 4, but I think it's the type of thing that Peter is talking about, both in terms of why we love and how we're to love. So, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Same chapter, verses 10 and 11. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved... If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Sliding down a little bit farther, verse 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That, that's crucial. That's it. All of these things are possible because God loved us and gave us his love to enable us to love others. 
time has creeped up on me, but a familiar, beautiful passage of love is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have to gift the prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Peter would say, Amen. This is what your faith is supposed to ultimately produce, is love. What does that look like practically in our interactions with one another? How should it manifest itself? Because it's one of the evidences of brotherly kindness. You could go back over and over to 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Well, if you just stopped right there, that would transform a lot of church life at a lot of churches. I praise the Lord that Lakeside does well, but all these could be applied by each one of us as we interact with other believers. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love looks like. So, as I quickly bring this to a close, I've run a little bit over. Peter's simply laying out for us what being a Christian looks like. This isn't superstar Christianity. This is just regular Christianity. This is where we should be striving. This is what we should become. And I praise the Lord, if you're doing well, excel still more. In fact, I'd suggest to you that all that we've just talked about is really what Christmas is all about. Why do I say that? Because it all culminates in love. We are supposed to be the expressions of love in a world filled with hate and bitterness and anger. Why? 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but Merry Christmas. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you, Lord, for their testimonies of your grace. Lord, each one of us, me included, can look at this list and say, Lord, we've fallen short. We know better. We're believers. We should have already been able to do these things, but Lord, we struggle and we stumble and we fall short. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your continual renewing. I thank you, Lord, that even as believers who struggle and stumble, you tell us to confess our sins to you and the blood of Jesus has already cleansed them. And Lord, as we approach Christmas Day, help us to truly think your thoughts about what it represents. It's the ultimate manifestation of your love for sinners and that you sent your son to this earth so that he could die for us. Thank you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.